Good Thursday morning, everyone out there, especially to my church family and to those who uh, who are listening on Sermon Audio this morning. I uh, pray that you've had a wonderful week, and uh, this morning may have a, a cup of coffee in your hand along with a Bible. That's a great way to start the day. And so uh, I welcome you this morning, and I'm glad to be here with you as we continue this journey through the events of Holy Week. We have seen so many great events, so many important events as Christ has entered Jerusalem and uh, judged the fig tree and cleared the temple and all of that picturing the judgment coming upon Israel and has gone through a day of teaching that so many important lessons were given and much judgment offered even in those words. And then a day of rest we saw on Wednesday as Christ remains in Bethany and enjoys fellowship and, of course, receives the adoration of Mary as she anoints Christ with this expensive and wonderful oil. We come today to a very important day, don't we? Thursday of Holy Week, an important day. The days uh, will continue to get more and more important. This day is incredibly important, and it begins with the preparations for the Passover meal. Listen as we read Mark chapter 14, beginning at verse 12. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go to prepare that we may eat the Passover? And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he goes in, say to the master of that house, The teacher says, Where is the guest room, which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared. There make ready for us. So his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. It's interesting that Jesus has has said nothing to them about what the arrangements will be. And so they begin to ask him. They want to know, what will the arrangements be? What will we do? And Christ explains it to them. So many commentators say Jesus must have been going out at some time that the disciples didn't know, and he must have been arranging for this house and for this room and for all of these things to fall into place. I stand much more with R.C. Sproul, who says that it's a better explanation just to simply say, this is God's providential hand. This is the providential hand of God. It isn't to say that it couldn't have been Christ out there working this out. It doesn't say. But if we have to take a stand somewhere, I'd rather take a stand on God's providence because as you read through the events that Mark will tell us about here, we're going to see the providential hand of God at work over and over again. Regardless, here is this moment where they will go and partake of the Passover. Now, we know that's an important event in the life of Israel, probably the most important event of the year, other than maybe Yom Kippur would compete with it in terms of in the regular religious life of Jews. It was incredibly important. And so here they are to go to prepare for this meal, this important meal. But isn't it interesting, as we move forward in the text, it changes to a discussion on betrayal. One will betray Christ. Again, his providence, his foreknowledge, his wisdom is seen here, isn't it? He's not surprised. He prophesies that it will happen. In fact, that providential thread runs all through this, and it's not only found in Mark's gospel. It's found throughout the gospels. It's found throughout the word of God, God's providential hand at work. 
It says in Acts that all of these events take place according to the foreknowledge and will of God. All of these things are happening by God's providence. And so we see that as Christ predicts what will happen, that there is one who will betray him. Uh, in fact, he mentions it at the meal, and, and the different disciples say, Is it I? In this gospel, we get that concern from all the disciples. So the Lord knew who would betray him. This is not a mystery to him. He sees this. He is, he, again, the providence of this scene is just hard to miss. Isn't it interesting that uh, this betrayal is such an amazing and, and large part of the story here in Mark's gospel? Ronald Kernigan, a, a commentator on this passage, says, it's interesting because most preachers today focus on the Lord's Supper and ignore the betrayal. And yet Mark does the opposite. He focuses, it seems, more on the betrayal than he does the supper. And again, I believe the purpose of that is providence, to see God's sovereignty in this and that nothing is happening in a way that is chaotic. Nothing is happening in a way that is not foreseen and ordained by God. All of it is happening according to the plan and foreknowledge of God. In fact, the prophecy that this will happen is itself built in to biblical theology, isn't it? Christ, as he talks about this, says that one who is at this very table and, and dipping his bread in my cup, that that itself is a reference back into biblical theology, isn't it? It goes back in biblical history, of course, to Psalm 41. I'm going to read just a portion of Psalm 41, starting at verse 7. All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise my hurt. An evil disease, they say, clings to him. And now that he lies down, he will rise up no more. Even my own familiar friend in whom I have trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Now, if we were to read the inscription at that, Psalm, Psalm 41 to the chief musician, a psalm of David. Now, David wrote this, it would seem, in reference to an event in his own life, didn't he? As Absalom rebels against David and, and David must flee the city. And everyone is upset who is siding with, with David. And as they're leaving the city, they cross a very familiar place. In fact, as we read about it, we would see that, in fact, he is crossing the Kidron Valley. It says in verse 30, uh, 23, excuse me, uh, this is Second Samuel fifteen twenty three, And all the country wept with a loud voice, and all the people crossed over. The king himself also crossed over the brook Kidron, and all the people crossed over toward the way of the wilderness. The brook Kidron, this is the brook that runs through the valley of Kidron or the Kidron Valley. And so we see the way he was going out. And then if we continue it, something amazing is recorded here. Verse 30. So David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went up. And he had his head covered and he went barefoot. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and went up weeping as they went. Then someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray Turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Brothers and sisters, if you know this story well, you know that Ahithophel was one of David's greatest counselors. 
a man of incredible wisdom, impeccable wisdom, a man that David could trust in, a man that David often went to get his counsel. And now that trusted man, that trusted friend and counselor, he has turned against David and sided with Absalom. And David's heart is is heavy. He's been betrayed by one from his inner circle. He's been betrayed by someone he trusted. He's been betrayed by someone who sat at his table and ate his bread. Isn't it interesting, jumping ahead in the events of tonight, of this night in Holy Week, after the Lord's Supper is over, Christ will go out from this place. And where will he go? Having been betrayed by one of his inner circle, by one who sat at his own table and ate of his bread He will cross the Kidron Valley, across that Kidron Brook, and go up the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane. My friends, the biblical theology could not be richer or more clear or point forward to Christ. It's not uh, that this is all happenstance. The events in David's life are a shadow. They foreshadow the events of Christ. Christ is the greater fulfillment of the events in David's life. All of it pointing forward to Christ, the son of David, and yet David's Lord. Going back for a moment to the idea here or the the text here where we find this amazing Last Supper. You know, one thing we could call it is the last Passover. It really is, in a sense. Because after this, every year after this, those who trust in Christ, those who are in the will of God, are observing what? The Lord's Supper. So although this is the Lord's Supper, it really is the last Passover. And as they gather together, the Lord is, in a sense, transitioning even in the midst of this, isn't he? It's not really changing it. He's fulfilling it. Just as the events of David's life point to Christ, so too does this Passover celebration point to him. Again, biblical theology is so clear and evident on this. We look back at the story of, of the people of God in the Old Testament and the, the people that have been set apart, if you will, God's people, this nation of Israel. God selects Abraham, calls him out, and through him begins a people, Isaac and Jacob, and on and on and on. And he makes a covenant with that people, brings them out of the land of slavery, brings them out of servitude and into a land of promise. But Christ says all of that pointed forward to this covenant that was made with Israel. And yet even in the Old Testament, there was a covenant spoken of that would come, a new covenant. Jeremiah 31 speaks of this. A new covenant, not written on tablets of stone, but written on flesh heart. That's what Paul gets out in 2 Corinthians My friends, what we need to recognize in this is that Christ is pointing forward to this night a new covenant. This new covenant that's been spoken of, it's coming into being. This new covenant that is pictured, if you will, in this bread and particularly in this cup. Let's listen to the words here as Christ has this supper. It says, And as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, blessed it, and broke it. And gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many 
And then he added, Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. You see, there's something very significant being told to us. This covenant is not only mediated in Christ, it is sealed by his blood, guaranteed by his blood, purchased by his blood. It is in Christ's blood that this is made possible. This wouldn't have been a mysterious image to the Israelites. They knew the the role blood played in the first covenant. They can read about it in the book of Exodus as blood was sprinkled upon the Ark of the Covenant. My friends, Christ is giving the significance of this night, of the events that are coming to pass. It says as they finished their meal, they sang a hymn and they went out to the Mount of Olives as we just spoke about a moment ago. And then Jesus said to them, and I want you to think about this idea of a struck shepherd. All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now that's reference to Zechariah 13.7. And if you read that, it's an interesting passage that deals with the, the and, and actually in an age of false prophets and, and all sorts of things, the shepherd being struck and killed, and the sheep being scattered, and then uh, a difficult time coming on the sheep in which two-thirds die, but a third are refined through the fire. It's an interesting passage, but Christ says, even that points to me. Again, how can we miss the the incredible foreknowledge and wisdom of God? How can we miss the, the providence of God here, where even this is being prophesied? Oh yeah, later tonight, you all will, be, will leave me. You will, will scatter from me. You will leave me. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter can't believe it. (laughs) Peter can't believe it. Even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be, he says. But Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. I heard a, a great scholar say recently that He thinks the night of this betrayal, there really wasn't much difference. If you had seen Judas Iscariot and Peter, you wouldn't have been able to tell them very much apart. But the grace of God in Christ Jesus, Christ's grace toward Peter restores him. My friends, Peter's still arguing with him, isn't he? He speaks all the more. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. He, it's almost like he thinks this is a test and he's being tested to, to really verify his devotion. And then they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, the famous account of this, of course, is in John's Gospel. And it's my intention maybe to do this every year from a different gospel. And I look forward to John because that high priestly prayer, that's such a beautiful part of the scriptures where you have this intimate moment between Christ you know, the second person of the Trinity and, and our Heavenly Father, the first person of the Trinity, this inner Trinitarian conversation, this prayer. What a beautiful moment that is. But what we recognize here is there are some things that are challenging, aren't there, in this garden? Difficult truths of Christology, difficult theological points that, that we struggle with, as we see Christ himself seem to struggle, don't we? He he is sitting there praying, Abba, Father, all things are possible with you. 
and for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Now that is a can be a struggle, can't it, to, to wrap our minds around what's being said there. This conversation to his heavenly Father, he declares, right, correctly, of course, this is Christ speaking, that God can do all things, and so take this cup away. Now we know what the cup is, don't we? We know that the cup in the scriptures represents this symbol of, of God's wrath, Jesus says, I know that your wrath must come upon me, not for my own sin, but for the sin that is imputed to me that I will carry to the cross. It's almost as if Christ is saying, if there is another way, right? If there's another way. Mark doesn't include those details, but if there's another way. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. The reason I say this can give us some difficulty theologically is it's important to, when we're thinking about Christology and and who Christ is, that in Christ is the perfect unity of both divinity and humanity. Perfect and full humanity, perfect and full divinity in one person perfectly merged. And so it's easy then to separate those two things improperly. And so we have to distinguish the human nature and distinguish, if you will, the divine nature, distinguish aspects, but we cannot separate them. And that is very difficult for our minds to do in much the same way that it's difficult to talk about different traits uh, within God, his attributes without separating them. You know, we like to focus on God's love or his wrath and kind of separate them out. But they're perfectly united. Wrath and love are perfectly united in God. God is a God of wrath, but he's also a God of perfect love. Those things are united perfectly in him. Our fallen human minds have trouble wrapping wrapping our minds around those things, don't we? We have difficulty with that. But they're true. It's true in the attributes of God, and it's true in Christology here. Christ is fully God and fully man, and we see aspects here. But what we should never do is come away from this thinking that Christ isn't on board this plan. We shouldn't think that. It's not right. And this plan of salvation is a plan that was devised and carried out within the Trinity, if you will. God the Father sends the Son, but the Son comes willingly tells us in Hebrews that he endured the cross for the hope set before him. And Christ isn't a hostage to the plan and will of God. But we see in this passage the truth that Christ understands the awful wrath that is going to fall on him because of sin. Not his own sin, but the sin of others imputed to him. My friends, as we think about this scene, we should never overlook that. As Christ was there praying in the garden, knowing what was coming, saying, Father, if there's another way, but nevertheless, your will be done. We've spoken about it before, but this is what Paul is talking about. The gospel is the way that that God can be both the just and the justifier. If he justifies, 
without a proper penalty for sin, then he is no longer himself just. But if he is to stay just without a proper atonement for sin, then there is no justification. The gospel explains why this wrath had to fall on Christ if Christ is to save his people. My friends, as we get ready to look forward to the events of Good Friday tomorrow, I pray you would just take a moment to think about Christ in this Garden of Gethsemane, having been betrayed, knowing that these who are closest to him will scatter soon, deny him, that he knows that he goes to the cross to take that wrath upon himself, to drink that cup himself. And he did it that those who are his might have life. Brothers and sisters, if you belong to Christ, he took the wrath you deserved upon himself that you might be set free from sin and death and brought into a joyous peace with God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, this day that reminds us of what Christ did for us. We know the cross is still ahead, and we marvel at the cross. But we want to take a moment today, Father, just to remember this moment, the institution of the Lord's Supper and how important that is in the life of the church, but also to take a moment to be thankful for Christ and the burden that he bore, the price that he paid, the wrath that he had imputed to him that belonged upon me and many others who are listening this morning. What words can I say that could ever offer thanksgiving enough for what Christ has done? Father, we say thank you. Help us to remember what our Christ did for us. We pray this in his holy and exalted name and for his everlasting glory. Amen.